Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, back on uh, December 31st, uh, at while I was getting ready to go out to celebrate the new year, and I was just about to post some news on the China Africa Project Facebook page, I was struggling to find stories because typically at that time of year, uh, towards the end of the year, news does run pretty slow. Uh, there, though, at 7.30 p.m., uh, a story from the Japanese newspaper Yomori Shimbun, which is one of the largest newspapers in Japan. I mean, think of it as the New York Times or the Washington Post. Is that correct? Is that a fair assessment of the Yomori Shimbun? The main New York Times uh, kind of analog would be Asahi Shimbun, but Yomori Shimbun is one of the biggest it's ones. It's one of the biggest ones. So this was not a small little paper that this article passed on. And lo and behold, Chinese cooperation eyed on African projects, referring, of course, to Japanese projects. And that was something of a huge surprise. And it didn't strike me that it was no, it was a coincidence that this story broke at 7.38 p.m. on December 31st. And in part, I think it's really important to provide some context for those who are not familiar with Japan-China relations. Uh, these two, to say the least, are not on good terms. And tensions all the way back to World War II and beyond uh, still royal relations today. So the idea that Africa now is becoming a potential point of collaboration between Japan and China was very interesting. Now, the Japanese were saying in this article, and it just seems like it was a trial balloon that the policymakers were floating, that maybe Japan and China can collaborate together on Japanese projects in Africa in exchange for China's assistance on North Korea where, of course, as everybody knows, North Korea is firing up all sorts of missiles and threatening its neighbors, potentially, particularly Japan. And so here we thought we got this, this indication of the politics and the geopolitics that are playing out in Asia, but also all the way over in Africa. So that brought us to this issue of how are Asian countries, particularly India and Japan, reacting to China's One Belt, One Road, which is the global trading route that now is making inroads in Africa and around the world where the Chinese are planning to spend up to a trillion dollars to build out these roads. And Kobus, it really seems like Japan and India um, are, are sending a very confused message. On the one hand, they see China as a competitor, but on the other hand, they see it as a potential collaborator. You have to keep a few kind of background pieces of context in mind. In the first place, India has been very paranoid and worried about the Belt and Road Initiative. The, um, it's frequently characterized in India as encircling India. Um, and they're particularly worried about the sea route. Well, they're actually worried about both. They're worried about the, the land route that, that runs, among others, through Kashmir, uh, which is disputed territory, um, and through Pakistan, which has its own complicated relationship with India. But they're also worried about the expansion of Chinese uh, naval power in the Indian Ocean. Um, so there's that. Then, on the other hand, as you say, Japan and China has had very, very complicated relationship for a long time. And my feeling is that the, the launching of this news on uh, on the 31st of December is very significant because in, anyone who's been in Japan over New Year knows that the entire country shuts down. Like in some cases, not even ATMs don't even work. Um, so it was clearly done to draw as little attention as possible. And it might be because there's so much nationalist kind of energy against China within Japan. So 
earlier this earlier in 2017, um, um, Shinzo Abe, the the um, Japan's um, uh, prime minister, visited India, and and um, there that was the occasion for the announcement of this big collaboration between Japan and India, um, you know, in African development. And the the logic underlying all of that is that it is designed to contain Chinese kind of expansion in some kind of way. Now, this kind of collaboration between Japan and China, possible collaboration, t- throws a whole bunch of new questions in the air, including what's happening with India and all of this. So we thought this would be an interesting topic to explore in how Asia's major powers, Japan, China, and India, are dueling for influence in Africa and their competing agendas in Africa. Sometimes they align, sometimes they don't. So we thought we would then find an expert in the subject to kind of talk about this, and boy, did we find somebody. Uh, Mandira Bagwandin is an independent researcher and soon to be a PhD candidate at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And she's also the author of a, of a commentary that appeared last September uh, on the website of the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University, also in Cape Town, South Africa, Making a Play for Africa, China, India, and Japan Compete for the Continent's Favor. Mandira, welcome to the program. We're so glad to have you. Hi, thank you for having me. So these are three countries that historically have not gotten along very well. Uh, China has border disputes with India. China has certainly territorial disputes with Japan. China has historical rivalries with both. Uh, now we are starting to see some of those, uh, those tensions and those rivalries play out in Africa. Uh, At the same time, we're also seeing the fact that the Japanese, through their summits, the Chinese have something called FOCAC, which is the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. The Japanese have TCAD. Uh, Tokobis, I think you're going to have to help me here. Tokyo International... Oh, T-I... Aid and... on African development. That is the equivalent to, T- to to FOCAC, where they are throwing tens of billions of dollars to Africa, some say in pursuit of China and not to be left behind from China. Both China and Japan have bases in Djibouti now. So the rivalries seem to be making their way from Asia into Africa. Talk to us a little bit about the relationship among these three actors to kind of set the table for us for what we should expect and what we're going to talk about in terms of some of the collaborations or competitions that will that will start to arise. So you definitely right in saying, you know, the, the recent reports about uh, China, Af- uh, China-Japan cooperation, Africa definitely uh, creates a bit of a puzzle. So far, um, over the years, or at least over the last, I think, almost three decades, uh, China has consistently worked on improving its political and economic relations in Africa. And unlike its uh, its uh, other Asian neighbors, specifically India and Japan, it has quite a strong uh, foothold in Africa. Lots of, it has deep pockets to back up its investments. And it just has better fo- uh, fostered political and economic relations. And now I think we see India and Japan are starting to realize or starting to see that Africa holds quite an uh, important position in Beijing, Beijing's geo-strategic uh, and geo-economic thinking. And I think they now want to get on uh, to the bandwagon and start kind of um, oh, curbing China's influence and uh and investments in the region. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like a, a new um, 
the Asian scramble for Africa almost. Mandira, I wonder if you could give us uh, a few details about the Asia-Africa Growth Corridor, this this uh, initiative put forth by India and Japan last year. How is it different from the China's Belt and Road Initiative? First, it's important to note that uh, the Asia-Africa Growth Corridor, or commonly known by its acronym, the AAGC, is still in its infancy. Uh, it has barely begun to evolve. So a lot of a lot of what we know about this initiative is based on statements from officials and analyses uh, and dissemination of information from the media and a few scholars. Um, so the the AAGC is a, is part of the Indo Pacific Freedom Corridor, being pioneered by India and Japan. It was officially announced in. November 2016, and the Freedom Corridor reportedly aims to ensure regional uh, stability and transparency in fostering uh, cross-continental relations and partnerships. Um, The AAGC is an important component of of this project. Essentially, it's a combination of new and ancient maritime networks that will drive and facilitate the integration of African and Asian economies. When looking at the similarities to Obor, I think there are three three factors that uh, need to be taken into consideration. The one is the looking at each initiative scope, uh, structure, and the its geographic focus. Um, so firstly, when we look at AAGC, it's similar, very, very similar to OBOR in that it has an infrastructural and connectivity development aspect. Um, however, it's kind of shifted a bit in that it, it now it has prioritized um, more of a socioeconomic uh, people-driven, people-centered development approach. And I think this is largely because, you know, it, it's unable to compete with China's massive uh, trade-related infrastructural investments in the region. And so we, um, we're seeing that the media has, has, has uh, reported that, you know, it will focus on projects such as um, uh, in the health sector, the agricultural sector, pharmaceuticals, um, agro-processing, disaster management, uh, exchange of skills. You know, India has quite a huge IT uh, sector, software developers, um, technology. So um, it does have, it. trade facilitation is an important priority and the necessary infrastructure uh, for that. But it's taking on a, it's just shifting the focus a bit more and, um I think having a more human resources of uh, development of human resources approach. You mentioned the word scramble, and and that's a, a loaded word in Africa, and and one that that it, that harkens back to a colonial reference and an imperial type of reference. Um, the the issue that I'd like to focus on is is that I I don't think this is as much a scramble. In any way, I don't even think this is really much competition. And Kobus, I'd like to get your take on this after we hear from Mandira. The the fact of the matter is, is that Japan and India fancy themselves as competitors to China, but they're nowhere close. I mean, Africa's trade with India is, I think, if the last statistics I looked at was about a tenth of what it is with China. The investment numbers are, are fractional. Japan has a lot of 
a lot of money going from Japan into into Africa, but very little trade overall. Japanese companies don't invest anywhere near as much as what the Chinese are doing. There's not a lot of Japanese people relative to the numbers of Chinese migrants setting up factories. There also isn't the policy infrastructure that they have in China for this type of engagement. So on the surface, we look at, yes, three countries, three big economies, three rivals. But the reality is, is that they're very, very far behind China. And these two countries have very little legacy of cooperating together. So even though it sounds great through, you know, the Indo-Pacific Freedom Corridor, I mean, it it sounds almost like an American title. Um, The truth is, though, this, I don't think the Chinese really have that much to be concerned about, right? I don't, I don't think they have that much to be concerned about. But uh, in terms of, like you said, you know, the way ahead of, of the of Japan and India in, ter- in terms of um, their relations with Africa and developments on the continent. But I think, you know, pairing, you know, India's India's um, strengths. So it's it knows African markets well with Japan's uh, technological skills and uh, funding ability you know they do pose a challenge and I think a lot of the motivations are more from a from a kind of a geostrategic perspective Uh, I'd say a geostrategic scramble more likely Um, so I think a lot of the 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 power the power games that are that are playing out in Asia are now playing out in Africa, and um, they will. It's not going to be a full on like I think they will contain their competitiveness and and have a very tactical approach with the AAGC um, from the onset and how it's been portrayed is that uh, a lot of the Indian media. I haven't covered Japan so much, but a lot of the Indian media have, you know, viewed it. Uh, they don't like it when you um, when you insinuate that it was in, a, in response to Obor or that, um, you know, it draws inspiration from Obor. It, they view it as a totally independent initiative. So, yeah, I think Africa is now kind of not going to be as a, 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 a platform or proxy platform for for Asian competition? Uh, I have a few things. Um, the first place I think it is one shouldn't underestimate the amount of of, in, of involvement coming from, especially from Japan in Africa at the moment. Japan, like China, is quite bad at promoting itself. Um, in, and I think they might be actually worse than China in promoting themselves in in Africa. But but there's actually quite a lot of Japanese projects running. There's, there's a bunch of Japanese pro- like port projects, um, like one in Tanzania that I know of, one um, this this port related projects in South Africa, There's, they do quite a lot of infrastructure stuff in in um, in Africa, um, and but they tend to it, it's always quite kind of low and you know how can I say like not not promoted you know kept quite quite quiet, um, and of course India has a long relationship with Africa, um, you know a, a particularly a kind of a cultural relationship with Africa. They they have both historically pushed this idea that they are very good at people people exchange with Africa, um, better than China. Like that that is a, that is rhetoric that has come a long time for over years and years in in Japan's relationship with Africa. Also, one has to remember that that. 
for a long time, Japan was was Africa's biggest aid donor. Um, right through the eighties, um, deep into the nineties, Japan was was uh, you know was a major aid donor to Africa, and they still are. I mean, they they announced thirty billion dollars of, of of financing um, at the last TCAD um, conference. So, you know, so so there there is some engagement there, um, but it's not on the scale of of, of Chinese engagement. Um, uh, at the same time, um, I'm very interested in what Africa's position is in all of this because, you know, generally Africa, I think, is anyone who wants to give Africa money, Africa is on board for that. Um, but I think it becomes a, a, a more kind of a complicated issue when you're dealing with countries that are, have such complicated relationships between, between themselves. Um, Mandira, I was wondering what you think about the African perspective of all of this. Is it possible for Africa to balance all of these powers? I think it is possible for Africa to do so. And as you said, you know, it's African states kind of welcome investment and money. It's, it's what, it's what they need for the economies to grow. Um, and I think what the main challenge for Africa is, you know, how it will, uh, best engage with the Belt and Road and the AAGC. You know, we want, I, I would like to see African states, you know, really, kind of exploiting this this rivalry and this competition to look at you know investments that will will improve their competitiveness on the glo- the, the competitiveness of their markets on the global global stage and as well as address you know the 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 infrastructural gap and infrastructural deficits so they i think it's more africa now needs to start start uh, kind of engaging from a position of, of leverage rather than weakness. And I guess just to, just to ca- yes. you know, kind of follow up on that, I guess then the issue becomes whether the concept of rivalry between them, this, this, this kind of couching of, this, of these exchanges as rivalry between India and Japan on the one side and China on the other, whether that is useful for Africa. Um, because now that, these, now that the Japanese are floating particular kind of projects for, for collaboration, the collaboration might be the, the more useful, you know, kind of frame to see it through because, you know, the, the, the combined kind of money and technological kind of prowess of, of Japan and China could, could really kickstart some of these projects. Some of them are extremely ambitious. There's, there's four that's been, that's been announced. One is a three is more than 3,000 kilometer long road that links several West Asian countries. Um, so, so it's very big projects. Um, and, you know, if, if they come off... Excuse me, Cobus, did, Cobus, did you say West Asian or West, West Africa? West Africa, West Africa. Got it, okay. Yeah, like, like uh, running from Nigeria uh, through Ghana, through several countries in West Africa. So, you know, just, just to, to finish that thought, the, you know, kind of, I think there, there is the potential for Africa to, to gain a lot more from having these countries cooperate rather than being in some form of like trumped up rivalry kind of situation yeah yeah, no i definitely the cooperation aspect would definitely be very beneficial but i'm reasoning from a point of like if you know cooperation cooperation is hindered by i don't know strategic reasons or um you know power shifts in asia and things like that it might be a bit difficult to get all three of them or even two of them to cooperate on a project. And, uh, you know, cooperation could come with other backdoor incentives that we're not aware of. Like uh, we have, if you look, remember the 
Japan uh, got involved in the Mombasa port in Kenya. And one of, I think, one of the reasons behind its agreement with Kenya for assistance in developing the port was to limit China from from putting the port under its, its, its influence. So uh, collaboration, I don't think it'll be pure like goodwill. There would be other strategic motivations behind it, I think. Uh, final question today. Africans oftentimes see themselves as the victims of outside powers and the great powers in particular. Uh, and there's good reason for that, given the kind of long, painful history of colonialism. And even in the Cold War era, when it wasn't colonial, but this Africa was one of the, the war, the, 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 the grounds for war between the, the proxy wars between the United States and the Soviet Union. So anytime there's discussion of these rivalries emerging from one continent coming over into another continent, it does raise the concern of whether Africa will once again be victimized here. But it does seem there's another story here that, as Kobus mentioned, the Japanese are throwing tens of billions of dollars at Africa. The Indo-Pacific Freedom Corridor promises new infrastructure and, and new engagement with Africa. So I guess I'd like to get your assessment as to whether or not you think that this tripartite rivalry among China, Japan, and India will benefit certain parts of Africa? Or should people be concerned that once again, great power rivalries are starting to play out and that may actually adversely affect the continent? Yes, I, I don't think we're going to see, you know, the kind of adverse effects that we experienced uh, with Cold War rivalries playing out in Africa. I think um, you know, Africa has come along quite a long way since then, and um, I think it's taken actually quite a bit of responsibility for its own development. And I would I would say that they will kind of assess African states will look at at what's being put on the table and assess you know which is the better option or can we kind of play these two against each other to to get the best option or in terms of projects and investments. So um, I think I think Africa is definitely has has a brings a lot to the table, you know, resources, land, investments. Um, you know, we have things like special economic zones being developed by China, um, industrial parks. So they they have they bring a lot to the table and they, I think African states know that they bring a lot to the table. So I don't think they'll we can gonna see this Asian rivalry results in African states becoming victims of of it. Um, if anything, if anything, I think um, they're going. African states will want to reap as much um, from this rivalry in terms of economic uh, investments that they can get from from the parties involved. This is what makes Africa such an interesting place in in global politics today, because it is at the center of so many emerging trends and geo geopolitical factions, alliances, all of these different things. And if you want to learn more about what's happening now in terms of how Asian rivalries are starting to make their way into Africa, I highly recommend that you take a look at the commentary written by Mandira over at the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. You can find that. Just look up Center for Chinese Studies or CCS Stellenbosch and you'll find it. The title is Making a Play for Africa. China, India, and Japan compete for the continent's favor. Mandira, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Good luck with your PhD coming up at the University of Cape Town. We, we, you survived your first podcast, and we're so happy and we're so glad that you were able to join us. Thank you.
Thank you for having me. Kobus, I really find it interesting to see how the geopolitics in Asia are actually starting to play out in Africa. But at the same time, I think my skepticism came out in my last question to Mandira about how much will really get done here and how much really can the Japanese and Indians challenge the Chinese if that is in fact their intention. Uh, It's not entirely clear in part because on the one hand, as we talked about at the top of the show, Japan is trying to collaborate with the Chinese on aid projects in exchange for help with North Korea. But in, on the other the other side of it all, they, they do see themselves as competitors. And I wouldn't really wonder how much is actually going to get done and who's going to benefit here. And, and let's not forget that people have approached the Chinese uh, for collaborative efforts in the past, and the Chinese have more or less rebuffed them. The United States floated the idea of working together, and that was, really wasn't entertained. At the same time, Europe has also kind of talked about tripartite competi- uh, collaboration between China, Africa, and the EU. That, too, has gone nowhere. So I'm just not that sure that we're going to see much from the Indo-Pacific Freedom Corridor. I don't know if we're going to see much from the J- Japan-India alliance, because at the end of the day, what people value most are results on the ground. And the Chinese have proven themselves to be extraordinarily effective at delivering results, whether or not they're positive or negative, but things are happening with the Chinese, and, and that isn't really the case with other powers. You know, it's very interesting. On, on the one hand, I tend to agree with you that I'm not sure what's in it for China with some of these some of these um, collaborations being, being suggested by Japan. It'll be very interesting to see what the Chinese reaction is. I mean, one thing that could be in, for, in it for them is just simply saving, saving money. Um, <clears throat> you know, because the um, the Japanese have uh, they they're willing to sink money into some of these collaborations, and one one of the sums that I saw in Yomiuri Shimbun was about two hundred and eighty million dollars in in for for one of the for these these four projects that are that are being suggested for collaboration. Some of these projects are also Japanese projects, actually, um, where they are willing to pull in Chinese companies, which is really unprecedented. Like Chinese Japanese aid in Africa has always been. Tide aid. It's always been the same way as the Chinese. It's always been Japanese companies will do the work no matter what. You know, so so if they're willing to actually open that up to to include Chinese participation and particularly on projects that are already linked or already kind of um, known as Belt and Road related projects, that's a big climb down for the Japanese. It's a very big shift for them to make. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it'll be interesting. I mean, you know, who knows what'll happen. What, what I wanted to ask you, actually, is there's a, there's a big elephant in the room uh, in, in relation to all of this, and that is a Trump-shaped elephant. You know, the, the, the fact that the, the Japanese are willing to make all of these massive concessions to try and get something, try and get cooperation from China um, in, on North Korea means that, or it's widely interpreted, that, it, that the Japanese have lost a lot of confidence in the, in the U.S.'s ability to do anything about North Korea at all. Um, and that, so, so do you think this might be actually be a staging ground for potential actual collaboration between the, the, the neighbors of North Korea to deal with their problem? No. I think that I, I don't really see too much happening on this front for a number of different reasons. Number one, because I think the agendas of Tokyo and Beijing are are quite divergent from one another. And, and there just isn't a lot of precedent. But that said, though, that said, so my skepticism is on the record. When we were preparing for this show last week, uh, you said something very interesting. And it's a point that I've brought up in relation to the Chinese in Africa for a number of years. 
that the Chinese are able to do things in Africa that they can't do in any other part of the world. That is, they can deploy combat forces as part of UN peacekeeping operations, which they could never do in Asia, in Central Europe, in the Americas, or South Asia. Impossible to think that that would happen, but yet they do it. They're able to train combat forces off the coast of Somalia in anti-piracy operations, supply chain, uh, their logistics, all the different things that need to happen for navies they can't do in their, in their near abroad in Asia, in the South China Sea, for fear of upsetting the balance of power with that kind of thing, but they can do in Africa. They are piloting out new aid policies, development policies, commercial policies in Africa first, and then rolling them out to other parts of the world. So the one possibility here is in that it could be a testing ground for Sino-Japanese cooperation that simply cannot be done here in Asia by virtue of the intensity of the politics that exist between Japan and China. That said, to your point about Donald Trump, I think you raise a very interesting point here is that because of the, I don't know what the word is, because every time I describe what's happening with Trump, I get an enormous amount of of, of trolling from, from Trump uh, from Trumpsters here, but I'll go ahead and say it. It is a retreat of American leadership in the world, uh, particularly as a result of TPP, also because of the way that Trump has been handling North Korea. In one sense, he has shown results that some people say has produced uh, negotiations or at least a, a dialogue between North and South Korea, and Trump takes credit for that. He may deserve credit for that, in fact, by by shifting to such a belligerent tone. That being said, there is a sense in many parts of Asia that the United States is not going to be a faithful ally anymore. And you're starting to see then countries like Vietnam, like the Philippines, and certainly Japan begin to explore foreign policy options on their own. And this may be the first manifestation of Japan venturing out on its own in light of the fact that the United States' uh, commitment to Japan's security may not be as ironclad as they thought. So therefore, they are starting to be more creative in how they can contain North Korea and engage China. So there is probably some legitimacy to that. Of course, anybody has the answer to that? No, because there is no definitive answer to it. But I think you raise a good point, Kobus. Yeah, I mean, it'll be so interesting to see how this develops. It's also obviously happening within the context of the South Koreans going ahead to start talks with with North Korea, despite you know U.S. opposition or despite anyway you know tweets from Trump. So, um, so yeah, you know, I think I think to a large extent that the the Trump presidency has has knocked down a whole bunch of certainties that people have just were, would never that people were never challenging before, and now suddenly there's a whole bunch of new questions at play, um, and you know the role of Africa within the within that. Especially because Africa is the last real emerging market left in the world, um, you know that it, it Africa becomes this very interesting kind of space to play out some of these larger kind of geopolitical issues. Yeah, well, it definitely means that African governments, policymakers, foreign policy establishments have to become smarter about Asia and the politics there. So there is a burden here. If Africa doesn't want to become victimized again, it's going to have to understand how to deal with Asian countries who are now much more engaged on the continent. Let's hope that this is all a benefit to the continent because it desperately needs the investment. It needs the money. And getting this type of engagement can be a very, very positive thing. Uh, but also, if it's not played well... Uh, it could potentially be dangerous as well. We would love to hear what you think. We have a discussion going on all the time across our various social media channels, from Facebook to LinkedIn to Twitter uh, to our newsletter. 
this podcast. We would love to hear from you. We get questions and feedback and comments all the time. Uh, if you want to reach us, we've got our ChinaAfricaProject.com email addresses. You can reach me at Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com, and I think it's Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Send us an email. Tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, if you would like to receive uh, we, a weekly newsletter on the top China Africa stories. Kobus and I put that together every weekend. It goes out on Monday. And it's really, if you don't want the full flood of, uh, of China Africa news that we put on Facebook and Twitter, it's probably a great way to kind of dip your toe into the water. Four or five stories with our podcast and one academic article every week to go, uh, to go in depth. So we think that would be, if you want to sign up for that, go just head over to our Facebook page or our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.